If you've got uh, your Bibles with you or a device, open that up to Mark chapter 1. That's where we are uh, this morning. should have said earlier too that as we're working through this uh, as a church, we're working through the Gospel of Mark in different ways. Um, we're also doing so in our small groups. And so if you're not in a small group, if that you know two minutes of saying hello to people around you didn't help you meet someone or, or get super connected, um, then a small group is a great way to do that. And, and the easiest way to get into a group is to, on that white card, put your name and details and tick the, the box on the back about joining a small group and we'll, we'll go from there. When I was ordained a, a couple of years ago, one of the things that they made us do was to think about it and talk about our, our path into ministry. I can look back over my life and I can see all these different steps that have equipped and prepared me, different things that, that God was using to bring me to this place of, of being a pastor. And as I think about it, uh, I can trace the start of it all back to, to two experiences. The first would be growing up in a brethren church, where one of their distinctives of church life was this time of open worship, a service where, where anyone, or really anyone who was male, uh, could stand up and could share a word from the scripture, give out a, a, a hymn or, or say a prayer. And I remember me and a mate just sitting there egging each other on until finally each of us took a turn to, to stand up and to share something and, and then continue to do so over following weeks. And the other for me would be joining the church music team and playing guitar when I was about 12. Now, I wasn't very good, especially in comparison to those I was playing with, but I was there most weeks doing my thing, getting better as time went on, and I moved from there into other roles in the team and in the church. So as I think about where I am now in terms of ministry, I can trace it all back to those very early uh, beginning experiences. That They mark, if you like, the beginning of my ministry in the church. Now, you might not be in ministry as such, but, but you might still be able to trace your chosen career path or life's calling back to certain events. Maybe it was the example of your parents, a particular experience you had, the words of a teacher or whatever it might be. There are moments that, on reflection, have set the direction for the course of your life. Well, as Mark wrote his gospel of the life of Jesus he looked back over all that Jesus did and accomplished, and he traced the beginning of Jesus' ministry back to one event. Uh, John starts with creation. Matthew and Luke start with Jesus' birth, but Mark starts with Jesus' baptism. He sees this as the defining event that starts and even defines uh, his ministry. So let's have a read then from Mark chapter 1. It should already be there. So Mark chapter 1 and starting at verse 9. It says that at, that at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven to say, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Jesus came from his hometown of Nazareth in Galilee, and he joins with the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem in going out to John the Baptist at the river. And in doing so, in, in 
taking that journey along with all this other part of Israel, he, he identifies himself with the people of Israel. He wasn't set apart from the people, but he was one of them. Remember, one of his titles at his birth is Emmanuel, God with us. And so he's there with Israel. And now Jesus didn't need to repent of his sin like the others were doing, but he stood there in solidarity with us. And this, in Mark's account, is the very first public act of Jesus that that Mark understood to be the commencement of his ministry. Everything else that Jesus would then do stemmed from this moment, because it was in this moment that God acted to declare and to confirm who Jesus is. See, Mark opened his gospel with these words back in verse 1. This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark says that Jesus is the Messiah, this one who is the promised and long-waited-for king who would rule God's people with justice and righteousness. And he says that Jesus is God's Son, And that these things, you know, that he's the king and that he's God's son, that this is good news. This is a big claim for him to lead off with. So straight off the bat, Mark backs it up with what God does and says at Jesus' baptism. So let's let's look at it more closely. Jesus comes to John and he's baptized. And as he's coming up out of the water, which is a sign of us Baptists doing baptism right, you know, that that he comes up and out. It's not no sprinkling going on. I have to say that, I'm a Baptist pastor. <laughs> As he's coming up out of the water, three things took place. First, we read that the heavens were torn open. Matthew and Luke's account, they softened the language. They simply say that the heavens were opened. But Mark tells us here that they were torn open. It's a word used of you know, cataclysmic demonstrations of God's power. It's not just that the clouds, you know, kind of gently drifted apart, you know, as a gentle breeze blew, but that there was force, even violence to the action. It's the word that was used for the parting of the Red Sea as Israel escaped Egypt by the mighty hand of God. It's the same word that Mark uses at the end of the gospel, at Jesus' death, when the curtain of the temple that divides the people from the presence of God, when that curtain is torn in two, from top to bottom. It's something that no human hand could orchestrate or do. This is a clear and a powerful act of God in this moment. It echoes the words of Isaiah 40, uh, 64, 1, where the prophet writes, crying out, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. This is a clear act of God, the tearing open of the heavens that is seen and witnessed by Jesus and by others. And in the tearing open of of the heavens, God did come down as the Spirit descended upon or, or into Jesus. This is a clear mark of God's blessing, anointing, equipping and empowering of Jesus. It's a foretaste of what is to come, of what's recorded in Acts 2 when the Spirit comes upon and into all the followers of Jesus. But here and now in what we have here, the Spirit's descent at this time is significant because this marked his return, if you like, to God's people. In the Old Testament, God's Spirit was only ever on individuals and usually just for a certain task or role. Most recently in their history, God's Spirit had been on his prophets. 
Think of the opening words of Isaiah 61, for instance, where Isaiah declares, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. God's Spirit came upon the prophet to make this proclamation. And Jesus, experiencing here the Spirit's anointing, he appropriates this verse from Isaiah 61 uh, for himself in Luke. But prior to the Spirit coming on Jesus here, God's Spirit had actually been absent from his people for a time. The monarchy was no more. And even so, it would have been a long time since any of the kings of Israel would have been characterized as following God and having his anointing on them for their role. The temple had been destroyed, though later rebuilt, and the people had been taken into exile, marking the separation between Israel and God. And the prophets had fallen silent with no new revelation from God. But now... In Jesus' baptism, the heavens have been torn open and the Spirit returns as he comes upon Jesus, anointing and appointing him to his ministry. The words of Isaiah that, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down have been fulfilled as the Spirit comes upon Jesus. And so thirdly then, the voice of God is heard again by his people as he speaks from the heavens. Listen again then to to what he says to Jesus. He says, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Matthew has God declaring, This is my son. But Mark records God speaking directly to Jesus in powerful words of love and affirmation and identity. To no one else had such words been spoken. Abraham was God's friend. Moses was God's servant. Aaron was God's chosen one. David was a king after God's own heart. But Jesus is declared God's son, whom he loves, who brings delight to his heart. As the writer of Hebrews says, not even an angel has heard these words from God. Jesus is set apart from all others as the son of God. Now to take just a little detour, incredibly for us, through faith in Jesus and in what he has done for us on the cross, we too get to be God's loved and delighted in sons. And I'm deliberately keeping that that gendered term of sons because in the culture in which it was written, it was the male children who had the full rights and privileges as heirs in the household. And God has now extended that sonship to us, whether we be male or female. In Ephesians, Paul writes that in love... He predestined us for adoption to sonship in accordance with his pleasure and will. Or to the Romans, he says that the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. And the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we now are God's children. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Now, Jesus is uniquely the capital S Son of God. But these words spoken here over him can rightly be appropriated by us too as his sons, as his children. Jesus died our death so that we could live his life. And so we too need to hear and receive these words of love, affirmation, and identity. 
But in finishing the detour and coming back to the main path, what we've seen here, uh, we've seen three things happen at Jesus' baptism. The heavens were torn open, God's presence in his spirit descended, and a voice spoke from the heavens. Now, this is not just a, a random convergence of three events. To the Jews of the time, these, these events were traditionally understood to be the signs that God was bringing about his kingdom on earth. And so what happens in Jesus' baptism then is that the king of God's kingdom is declared and revealed. And if the king is here, then so is his kingdom. In the verses immediately after our passage for today, we read that that Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and he said, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. The kingdom is near because the king is here. God inaugurates his kingdom at the baptism of Jesus in, in this first public act of his ministry. It's like those movies that start midway or through or towards the end of the story. There's the, the hero of the movie, usually beat up and bleeding somewhere, somewhere, who then passes out before the scene changes and it's captioned, you know, 48 hours earlier. And then the story moves back up to that point. In some ways, what Mark does with his baptism story is start with the end of the gospel, he has, starts with the gospel at its end. He has the end in mind. After all, as Paul writes, God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is the king to the glory of God the Father. This is the end point. Jesus being supreme and Lord over all, Jesus as king of his kingdom. And we see that inaugurated here at his baptism, at this defining event right at the start of his ministry. God's kingdom is near because the king is here. And that is good news. We see this further in what follows, continuing on in Mark chapter 1 at verse 12. After his baptism, after all this has happened, it says then at once the Spirit sent Jesus out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. So Jesus has received God's affirmation of who he is as God's son and as the king of the kingdom. And the very next thing he does is to go out and challenge his enemy. Satan, whose name literally means adversary, is the personal and supernatural enemy of God. And the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness to confront Satan and to give him a foretaste of what is to come, which is his ultimate defeat. But again here, Jesus is identifying himself with his people. We saw last week in the message there how, how the wilderness has a significant place in the history of Israel. The ancient Israelites were also led by God into the wilderness. And they remained there for 40 years until a whole generation had died because of their sin and their disobedience to God. However, Jesus in the wilderness didn't succumb. Instead, he remained faithfully obedient and submitted to the word and the will of God. 
Now, Mark doesn't give us much detail. If you read the other gospel accounts, you know, Matthew and Luke, they tell us the nature of the temptations and they, they emphasize Jesus' obedience in the face of them. But Mark, however, is making a different point. His point is that as king, Jesus rightly challenges all other competing authorities, especially that of his adversary. It's like in the final book or, or, and movie of The Lord of the Rings. Aragorn is crowned the true king of Gondor. And the first act that he undertakes after his coronation is to lead an army to the gates of Mordor to confront the enemies of the land, uh, the great enemy of the land, Sauron. Likewise, Jesus is declared to be, by, by God, declared to be the true king. And that naturally and rightfully results in conflict with the enemy and with his false claims. Jesus is letting Satan know up front that there is now a new reality in place. When the king is here, the enemy should fear. James 2 says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And this is exactly what Jesus did. Where the Israelites grumbled and rebelled against God, Jesus submitted and obeyed. Where Adam and Eve before them believed Satan's lies and gave in, Jesus held to the truth and stood firm. Jesus took it to the enemy and the enemy was sent packing. When the king is here, the enemy should fear because his false kingdom that has been set up in defiance of God is under threat and soon to be ultimately defeated. In this passage, Jesus has been declared and demonstrated to be God, the king of God's newly inaugurated kingdom. And if Jesus is within us, then the kingdom of God is here in our midst and we are citizens of it. He has, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, brought us out of the, the enemy camp of Satan and has brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. So let's move from what happened then to what's happening now. As citizens of the kingdom, Jesus is our king. That's what we mean when we declare that Jesus is Lord. He's our, he's our king. He's our authority. So what can we take away from our time together of what it means for us to live in this new kingdom of Jesus? The first thing that we can say is that we can expect struggle. Living in God's kingdom does not automatically mean that life is rosy, easy, and good. There is conflict and struggle. After all, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? We have changed kingdoms. We are now an outpost of God's kingdom living in hostile territory, and Satan will fight back. In September 2012, Terrorists in Benghazi, Libya, attacked a U.S. State Department compound and, and a nearby CIA station. And these facilities were, in effect, outposts of the U.S.'s sovereign state. But they were in a foreign land, and hostile elements within that community rose up to fight against them, killing a U.S. ambassador. It took the concerted effort of six security operators to repel the attack that came against them. We likewise are told... Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 
who are part of a rival territory, uh, rival kingdom rather, in his territory, we can expect his attack. Though Jesus has won the war, Satan is still fighting the battle. He will fight in our hearts, he will fight in our relationships, he will fight in our environment, anywhere he can to test and to try to overcome our allegiance to Jesus. So we should expect struggle. But secondly, we can face that struggle with God's help and with God's power. Jesus went into the wilderness temptation with the clear knowledge of his identity as God's son and with the surety of God's love and delight in him. So Satan comes to him with his temptations, saying to him, if you are the son of God, then do this. Jesus could stand firm in opposition to him. And the same is true for us. The more we grasp our identity as God's loved and delighted in children, the the firmer we can stand against him, the less we will be inclined or feel the need to respond to Satan's lures and lies. But even more than that, the same spirit that came upon Jesus is the same spirit that lives in us. The, The spirit's power and grace is available to us, working in us and through us, and sometimes despite us, to help us to live as a part of God's kingdom. We are not left alone to face the struggle. We have the Spirit of God within us. And even more than that, as amazing as that is, being citizens of the kingdom means that we are not just isolated individuals. We're not living out a a me and God dynamic. Rather, we have the other citizens of the kingdom that we find here in the church to also be around us and with us in all that we face. So expect struggle, but do so knowing that you have God's help and his power with you to face it and to stand against it. Thirdly then, we know that in Jesus we have a victorious king. He overcame Satan at his temptation. He defeated him on the cross and in his resurrection. And one day in the future, we'll finally subdue him forever. Jesus is the reigning and victorious king. And so is his kingdom. As followers of Jesus, we live in an unshakable kingdom. The writer to the Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, Let us be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. See, it doesn't matter what Satan or the world brings against us. The kingdom of which we are a part is secure because its king is victorious. It will not be moved. It will not be overcome. Now, there is no doubt that Christianity is under attack in our society today. Look at the changing nature of, of sexuality and sexual morality. Look at the attack of politics on the value and dignity of all human life. Look at the challenge of other religions or of no religion or of pick-and-mix Oprah-style spirituality. Look at how all views are tolerated and accepted except for those of evangelical Christianity. Look at how church attendance is shrinking, how new property developments around Melbourne, for instance, prohibit the building of any places of worship. It looks dire. It looks overwhelming, but the kingdom of God is strong and unshakable. 
it is not under threat. And the same can be said of our own lives. Jesus was in, was in the wilderness 40 days without food, tempted by Satan. We can experience similar. We're made redundant at work. We suffer anxiety, experiencing marriage difficulties. We live with chronic pain, betrayed by friends, beset by sin can't overcome, facing grief and loss, struggling on every front. It looks dire. It's overwhelming. But the kingdom of God is strong and unshakable. It is not under threat. In Israel's history, they were taken into exile by the Babylonians. There the king, Nebuchadnezzar, built this golden statue and he declared that at the sound of certain music, all people must bow down to this statue and worship. And while everyone did that, three Jewish men remained standing. These men, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they were brought before the king who threatened to throw them into the fire and they responded, Look, Neb, if we are thrown into the fire, that was a bit of poetic license, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve, he's able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But you know what? Even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. This too is to be our stance. It doesn't matter what happens to us. Floods, fires, persecution, judgment, marginalization, sickness, pain, death, loss. God's kingdom is secure. And our place in it, God's kingdom is unshakable rather. And our place in it is secure. And this is not said lightly or flippantly. It's not said uh, with a kind of blatant disregard for the realities of the lives that we live. But rather it's said as a statement of the new reality that we have in Jesus. It's said with faith and with hope. Just this week I read Psalm 62 that says, Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from Him. Truly He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken because I'm part of an unshakable kingdom. Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from Him. Truly He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor, they depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. And so trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to Him, for God is our refuge. We live as part of an unshakable kingdom, as the children of the victorious King. Yes, we have struggle now, but it's only for now. Our hope is certain, our future is secure, and so we can endure. The kingdom is near because in Jesus, the king is here. And if the king is here, then the enemy should fear. And in a phrase that I couldn't make rhyme, when the king is victorious, his kingdom is unshakable. So expect struggle, but face it with God's help, knowing that we are part of an immovable kingdom. Let's stand firm and secure as we live with Jesus as our king. Let's pray together, church.
God, we thank you for what we have seen today from your word. We have seen Jesus declared by you to be your son, loved by you and delighted in. We've seen him declared by you to be the king of the kingdom. And we've witnessed then his victory over Satan, a foretaste of what is yet to come. God, we've seen Jesus, and he's glorious, and he's wonderful. He's almighty, and he's powerful. And then, God, we've seen his work to make us citizens of his kingdom, to give us his life, his victory, if you like, to bring us into his kingdom that is unshakable, to give us his power and ability to stand against the enemy as we face the struggles that come in our lives. And so, God, I pray that we might go from here infused with hope, infused with strength and with courage and with trust in who you are, God, in our lives, there is all sorts of struggle and battle. We say this of our culture and society in general, and we say this of our individual specific lives. So God, may the truth of what we've heard today, may it not just be, you know, words from the Bible, but may they be truths, a reality that we live and own and appropriate to know your spirit powerful spirit in us to know your unshakable kingdom that we're a part of to know your victory as the glorious reigning victorious king and so god we we dedicate ourselves to you just as jesus submitted himself to you god so do we submit ourselves to you now to live as citizens of your kingdom to be your light in the world to overcome the darkness that would come against us, to, to submit to you and resist the devil that he would flee from us. And we pray, God, for your kingdom come more and more in us and through us, God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.